0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Folks, John and I went mental on this, and that for the next nine hours, there's going to be a complete mythology of these gazillionaires these technology giants, and these politicians as they spar in Washington. What we wanted to do is have a sane conversation with a doer, someone like Cook, someone like Bezos, and the rest of them. Jim McKelvey is the McKelvey School of Engineering at the Washington University of St. Louis. He stumbled on a thing with a guy named Dorsey called Square and made a pile of money. But that came out of his curiosity and his innovation in mean, everything from glass blowing to just simple engineering and Pascal language from another time and place. We're thrilled Jim McKelvey can talk today about these four people who are going to stand in front of our Congress. Jim, thrilled to have you uh, with us as well. You are like Bezos. You are like Cook. You're like the rest of them. You guys aren't normal. What's your message to these congressmen? (laughs) What? Come on. What's your message to these congressmen about the innovation you guys had when you were 15 or 20 or 25? So,
1: I mean, it's exactly the opposite of what you just said. Um, And the reason I wrote the book, The Innovation Stack, is because, in fact, I want to skewer this hero myth that somehow people who end up in these positions of fantastic power are somehow different than the rest of us. Um, I mean, it's li- it's literally the opposite you said. I'm a very normal guy. I live in St. Louis. Um, I- I'm not a genius. I'm not even that hardworking. I'm no good at running companies. So um, what I wanted to do was figure out what can take a normal person and put them in a position where someday they do run a company so powerful they get hauled in front of Congress.
0: Will Washington block that
1: innovation? Is that a risk that's out there? Look, there's always a risk from regulation. And when regulation comes, it usually doesn't come in sort of precise uh, surgical implements. But uh, I don't think Washington's gonna, gonna do that much. Um, but uh, then again, I'm not a legislator. I'm not even somebody who runs a company, so I'm not really qualified to speak on that. Uh, at, at best, I'm somebody who's spent a lot of time studying the dynamics of these companies. And in, I, I would say this, as somebody who is very regulated, I believe in regulation, but you want regulation to be consistent so that the companies and the people who work for them uh, can adjust and uh, you know not have to lurch back and forth.
2: Jim, I want to take Tom's question and and turn it on its head. The idea that perhaps Washington could uh, squelch innovation are big tech companies squelching innovation. This is one of the big questions, as perhaps the idea of Amazon taking out and and eliminating some of the platforms for competitors or or sort of pushing them down on the search function in order to. uh, pr- basically, push forward their own products first. Is that stifling innovation?
1: Well, look, I don't know exactly what Amazon's doing, but I, I will tell you this. I mean, the reason I wrote the book was because uh, Amazon, in its early days, attacked Square, and they copied our product, they undercut our price, and everyone expected Square to die, um, and we didn't. Um, and uh, you know, a year later, Amazon gave up uh, processing credit cards.
3: And um, and honestly, competing with them, they were really gracious. The competition that you got from Amazon, do you think that made Square better? Um, actually, it was almost irrelevant. The funny thing about what
1: happened with, with Amazon was that um, because we had an innovation stack, which is this weird thing that I've been studying for three years, the competition really didn't happen in a way that was traditional. So if you've got normal businesses, which are basically sort of very close copies of each other, then competition uh, is, can be deadly. And when Amazon does this to normal companies, it wipes them out. Um, but in the case of Square and some other companies that have these things called innovation stacks, you're actually uh, almost competition-proof, at least as long as you play by a certain set of rules that you know, I spent three years studying. So I think um, it, you know, everyone expected it to be this giant battle. Um, but at Square, we really didn't do anything different. And by the way, that pattern repeats in, in dozens of companies that I have studied, uh, in, in, including one, you know, Bank of America, the founding of Bank of America. Um, it was done by a kid who dropped out of school at 15 years old. Um, no formal education. He was a produce yeah, but, vendor. But Jim, and Jim, he, Jim, I don't mean to
0: interrupt, but we're going to run anything. out of time. Jim, this is critical. Cool. Is Washington going to get in the way of that innovation stack?
1: No, Washington's not going to do it because it can't. Um, the, Companies with innovation stacks adapt very, very quickly. What Washington needs to do is just lay out the rules. They need to talk about what's important. Um, if, there, if there needs to be some protection, they put in some protection. But what we need as
3: innovators is to just know the rules that we're playing in. Hey, Jim, great to catch up with you. Right. Five minutes does not do this justice. We've <clears throat> got to get you back. Jim McCauvey there, Square co-founder and deputy chair of the St. Louis Fed. Jim Carrey Hall,
0: works within the competitive milieu of economics and equity at Bank of America. What she's known for is a blistering single sentence in a three-page report. Jill, you have a sentence which is stunning, which is small caps will see a 90% year-over-year collapse of earnings versus large caps with only a 40% collapse of earnings. How does small cap get to the end of the bridge?
4: Yeah, I mean, the, the fundamental backdrop for small caps is one of the reasons we've been cautious. I think, obviously, the, the, the coronavirus and the current crisis ha- has been one that's been more detrimental to small businesses. But even going into this, small caps were worse positioned than they usually are ahead of recessions. You had about a third of the, the Russell 2000 that had no earnings. You had record debt levels. Um, and now this, this earnings season, as you mentioned, you're seeing much, much bigger uh, year-over-year earnings collapses for smaller companies. And and they're still seeing weaker revision trends, even though we're starting to see a bottoming out there. So so we're still cautious for smaller companies. But but as you if you move into a more sustainable recovery, um, you know, while it may take a bit longer than than usual, given where they were, that that typically tends to be a more favorable backdrop for smaller caps. But but for now, we remain more relatively cautious there. Jill,
3: just walk me through the earnings profile relative to the price of the story. Large caps versus small caps now.
4: Sure. So, I mean, right now, on a valuation basis, all three size segments are trading at, at pretty extended levels versus history. So, so relative to earnings, the market certainly doesn't look look cheap, no matter what size segment you're looking at. Um, but, but for from a relative basis, if you're a long-term investor, that's sort of the the long-term bull case for small caps. Is relative to large, they're trading it at, at multi-decade lows. Valuation doesn't really tend to be very predictive if you have a short time horizon. You know, with the P/E multi of the market is today. It doesn't really necessarily tell you much about what returns you're going to get over yeah. the next year. But if you have you know a 10-year long-term horizon, <clears throat> then that does tend to be more predictive. So, so for a long-term investor, it could be a good entry point for small caps. But, but for the near, near term, we still remain cautious. Joe,
3: when you're thinking about these numbers and considering the price of the story, just how much is it distorted by the big four, these big tech names that we'll be reporting to Capitol Hill today?
4: Yeah, for the S&P 500 overall, we've definitely seen a, a lot of the the returns this year driven by by mega caps and fang stocks, amid all of the the unprecedented liquidity that we've seen. We're equal weight the the tech sector right now. We we have seen pretty strong earnings trends. It's been one of the sectors that this earnings season so far has continued to surprise to the upside, along with healthcare. It has some of the cleanest balance sheets in the S&P. So fundamentally, the sector still looks strong. But you know you have VALUATIONS GET MORE AND MORE EXTENDED AND ONE OF THE REASONS THAT WE'RE EQUAL WEIGHT TECH WITHIN THE S&P 500 IS POTENTIAL FOR for HIGHER REGULATION WHETHER SOME OF THESE COMPANIES WIND UP SELF-REGULATING OR WHETHER IT'S FORCED UPON THEM I THINK THAT'S SOMETHING THAT you know, as we move into election. And regardless, it's something that both sides of the aisle have, have talked about. So uh, obviously we saw what fin- happened with financials and regulation and, and lower multiples. So that's one one potential concern around tech stocks.
2: Jill, high regulation is one issue, but that can't erase the fact that we've seen an acceleration in the trend toward tech, toward working from home, toward the cloud. And I'm wondering how much this affects the small caps and fa- the fact that perhaps some of these companies are more leveraged to the old economy, the one that did didn't depend on tech as much, and perhaps that's one of the reasons why those shares are down 11% versus almost 17% gain on the NASDAQ. How much is this a structural challenge for small cap stocks going forward?
4: Right, I think that's exactly right. That that's one of the issues when we've looked at the the earnings exposure of small caps. They actually have about double the earnings exposure to some of what we would consider more secularly challenged industries, like some of those old, econo- old economy industries you mentioned, like REITs, um, you know, machinery, part, parts of uh, re- old brick and mortar retail relative to large caps. So, and the areas of small caps that that are more tech exposed, you know, small cap software, some of these areas. The Areas are where you have seen those those valuation multiples go more stratospheric. So, you know, overall w- within small caps, investing in in growth stocks does tend to be well, a a more consistent longer term strategy you know, than, than for large. But but yes, more more exposure to. Joe,
0: it may be micro caps, small caps. Who's keeping count? In the old days. When revenue was this damaged, and particularly unit growth was this damaged, you did a roll-up. Everybody merged, et cetera. Is the apparatus out there right now the catalyst, the incentives to get one big MA of the small-cap space?
4: I mean I think certainly you know M&A it, it tends to be cyclical so you know yeah. while, while certainly you're you're you can still see some some occur during during downturns and it tends to pick up cyclically um you know that when we, when you look for companies that could be acquisition targets that that tends to be one potential <clears throat> strategy in small caps um but but I think overall right now we're seeing a broader picture of you know uncertainty over cash deployment from corporates that's a theme we're seeing this earnings season where even though you know a lot of companies have 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 stopped. Uh, you know, a lot of the buyback and dividend suspensions may may largely be behind us to the overall market. Yeah, but this, I, I don't mean to resume.
0: interrupt. But, but Jill, I'm I'm baffled by this in the small cap space. If I'm at four times EBITDA, seven times EBITDA, maybe even seven eight times EBITDA, somebody at Bank of America or one of your competitors gets on the phone and says, "You can't grow yourself out of this. Merge." Is that mechanism
4: broken? I don't think it's broken. I, I think, as you say, for for a lot of small caps, there there are attractive acquisition targets, and this has been a very good market for, for not only for stock picking but for just very differentiated uh, you know valuations within the market. So I think you know what one of the things to to look at is is for small caps. You know, a lot of companies that that have you know attractive free cash flow, the ability to grow. Um, we, we've seen companies that are, are very over levered within small caps overall. So, you know, I think kind of separating out some, some of these metrics and, you know, just as an investor looking at the small cap size segment, even if it's a, if in a even if this is a point where, as we expect, value could, could continue to, to start to work, um, you know, differentiating within small caps, what's more quality value from, you know, levered risk within small caps um, and, and companies that still do have that potential to grow. Jill, since you're
2: uh, having a pretty cautious tone and a lot of people come on this program and they say that they're actually going more into small caps as a way to capture some of the upside on this recovery what do you say against the argument that these companies will benefit more from a weaker dollar more from a, a bigger resurgence internationally as a result of that
4: yeah, I mean, I think when we've, you know, when small caps overall have grown more internationally exposed over time, so the, the gap between small and large caps foreign exposure has has narrowed. They are still more domestically exposed. When we've looked at the, the dollar versus relative performance over time, it actually hasn't been very predictive in that, you know, you've seen some periods of, of secular dollar strength where small caps have underperformed, some where they've outperformed. So really what we found is that the overall economic backdrop and, and what's going on, Um, tends to be more predictive than just the level of the dollar itself.
2: Jill, what do you say to people who slough off the idea of bankruptcy or some sort of contagion among smaller companies saying the Fed has their back, fiscal stimulus will also help support them? Do you think that this optimistic view is perhaps overplayed
4: at this point? Well, I think, you know, certainly we're, we expect to remain in a lower for longer be- rates backdrop. We expect the Fed to remain accommodative. But, you know, in terms of the, the unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus we've seen, you know, one of the reasons that we're, we're cautious on the market and, and the S&P 500 overall um, in terms of not really expecting more, more upside through year end is that we we expect there could be payback risk from all the stimulus we've seen and that a lot of the the biggest stimulus has largely been been behind us. And certainly there's potential for more to, to help the economy. But, um, you know, we, we've we seen diminishing returns from stimulus in terms of the, the boosts we've seen to lower quality stocks. As we've seen each consecutive instance, those get less and less of a boost. So um, I think it'll remain an accommodative backdrop. But, but a lot of the, the biggest boost we've seen ha- has been in the past.
3: We're seeing fading collective will as well. Jill, great to catch up with you. Jill Kerry-Hall there of Bank for America. Tom King, let's bring in Priya Misra, shall we? TD Securities Global Head of Race Strategy joins us right now. Priya, I think you agree with me that this is more important than people are letting on later today. What are you looking for in the news conference with Chair Jay Powell?
5: Right. It's all going to be about the news conference because I don't expect any changes in the statement. We don't get the dot plot. We don't get projections. So it's all about how does he set the stage for forward guidance and how does he frame the QE? you know, is QE all about market functioning? Because if that's the case, and they should continue to buy across the curve, but market functioning has largely returned to normal. So are we gonna see a, a, a reduction in QE? I've actually been, you know, reading between the lines. A lot of the Fed officials have been talking about more accommodation. Well, one way they can provide more accommodation is to change the narrative of QE itself from being something about market functioning, which it did a great job, but it's it's sort of done, I think to now provide accommodation to keep long-term rates low. I think if we get that shift in narrative, the markets, um, you know, going to understand that the Fed is going to move further out the curve, that's going to help real rates decline some bit. I think we've started to price this in. If you look Across assets, the the dollar, gold, real rates, break-evens, all telling you that the market's setting up for sort of, I hate saying normal, but effectively normal QE, which is that the the intent of QE is to keep long-term rates low. I think we really need to hear that from Chair Powell because we've been setting up for that for the last couple of weeks. Priya,
3: when you hear Governor Brainerd say things like we need to shift away from stabilisation to accommodation, do you hear yield curve control?
5: I think she has been a proponent of yield curve control, and we were thinking that that's likely to happen this year. But from recent Fed communication, not everybody's on board. It's a completely new policy tool. How do you get out of yield curve control? So I still think it's gonna be in the policy toolkit, but something they can do you know, from the existing tools is certainly link forward guidance to inflation effectively suggesting a much more dovish reaction function if they had this reaction function in 2015 they wouldn't have hiked because core pce was significantly below two so i think they can do that with existing outcome based forward guidance They can also just shift the QE. So effectively provide accommodation, you know, giving them time until they actually analyze yield curve control. I do think they may have to do that next year.
2: Priya, the idea that you talked about, this is huge. The idea that the Fed could come out and say we are going to actively try to suppress longer term borrowing costs for the United States, basically monetizing the United States debt. That would have a torpedo effect on the dollar, wouldn't it?
5: I think that the part of the weakness in the dollar in the last couple of weeks, I think, is the market sort of listening to the Fed and saying that's probably the next step. So I think but absolutely, I think if they are very clear that they're going to keep long term rates low, that should weaken the dollar. Now, a lot with the dollar, a lot does depend on, uh, you know, what's happening, happening globally. If global growth is going to research then that can certainly take the dollar much weaker. I'm a little more pessimistic. I think, um, you know, I'm not sure that global growth necessarily picks up. So I think that ultimately will put a floor on the dollar. Plus, we have an election coming up. So there's a lot of other things going on with the dollar, too.
0: Priya, it's away from your remit, but tell me about the labor economy. I mean, I'm sorry, it's part of their mandate. It's not good. How do you take the prism of the labor economy and fold it over into lower for longer?
5: so i think um, you know um, clearly it's it's part of their mandate when we look at the labor market i think we've seen the improvement from reopening also from stimulus which is why this whole stimulus discussion is important our fear is that the labor economy is going to start to stall as we realize that the we're reopening to a new normal there'll be parts of the the labor economy that cannot get back to normal because it's the social distancing etc
0: Okay, but Priya, this is important. i got to make some news here. Are you on the glide path of Steve Major at HSBC or what we see out of some of the people at J.P. Morgan of a lower 10-year yield and even a 10-year yield that could threaten the zero bound?
5: Yes. I think for the zero bound, it's a little bit hard because the Fed can just let up on the amount that they're buying. But we actually do see lower 10-year yields in the near term. I think August seasonals are typically positive. We're seeing the recovery stall. And you have a dovish Fed that's going to start buying out the curve. I think that's going to actually – 10s could absolutely touch bottom in the very near term.
3: Priya, this is so, so difficult for a rate strategist right now, for anyone in this bond market. We touched on this in the last hour. How do you have some kind of call – on the yield curve, when you can have a Fed step in with yield curve control, even if you think inflation expectations are going to pick up because they'll tolerate higher inflation, haven't you just got to follow the Fed? Just the idea that whatever the Fed does is where the yield curve's going to go.
5: Right. Well, I think there's a the reaction function component. Then there's the actual economic data. And I think what we're all struggling with is we can't extrapolate from any of the economic data we've been seeing, right? Because the, da- the weakness was all about the lockdown. Now, the improvement seems to be all about reopening. So we're looking at these high frequency measures to try and estimate is the recovery stalling? We're all becoming epidemiologists. So we're looking at the virus rate death rate, unfortunately, depressing topics. But, you know, once you have that, if the Fed clarifies the reaction function, the market can then start to look at the data and then start to price and what happens to rates. But, I, you know, we're also looking at supply demand. If we're going to get another one and a half trillion more of supply, then I think this Fed buying becomes extremely critical to pick what, you know, how, where exactly is the tenure? What does that yield curve look like? But you're right. More Variables to look at now.
2: Priya, we're all becoming epidemiologists because this is a health problem. It's not a financial system problem. And I have to wonder if the Fed comes out and provides even more accommodation, what does that do at this point with near record low borrowing costs across the board?
5: I think it buys time. Does it prevent something like a taper tantrum? Let's say we get a vaccine soon, and I hope that we do. We get a vaccine, but it's going to take a while for that to. You know, be effective for for consumer confidence, business confidence to come back. I think where the Fed can absolutely help is keep things accommodative until we can get the public health response, until we realize that actually we're going back to normal, then they can take it back. I think that's the key, just to prevent some sort of big tightening in conditions because suddenly there's optimism about a vaccine. I think so, so they, they can be more preemptive It can just at least assure the market, take risk premium out and help risk assets. And they've done a great job so far. But I think they may have to do more on treasuries, given how much supply is going to come down the pipe.
3: Priya, you know I love catching up with you. We love catching up with you. Priya Misra there of TD Securities. You have got an important guest, though, Tom. This, this is Dennis Gartman. Co- Dennis Gartman,
0: out of retirement, off the golf course. And, John, this is without question the most important conversation in gold in the week, the month, and indeed the quarter. This is equivalent to Gary Schilling on low interest rates. A major uh, shout-out to the bulls in the equity market, someone like Ben Laidler uh, at Tower Hudson. Gartman nailed gold. He went even further and said not only own gold, but own it in yen and euro. And we get an update this morning from Mr. Gartman. Dennis, I believe off your reports, you are out of gold. How could yes. Gartman be out of gold?
6: Well, let's, let's. I'm practicing social distancing in the gold market. It has become a little too crowded. And as uh, I think it was Yogi Berra, who's, who was talking about a <clears throat> restaurant one time in New York, who said nobody goes there anymore. It's too crowded. It's become awfully crowded. The boat has become very crowded. Too many people involved. I couldn't get people interested in gold of consequence two and three years ago. And now it's front page well, news. Now it's the front page of every report that you see. It's the front page of magazines. It's the lead article on and, and the radio and television. And I think it's just become a bit too crowded. That's all.
0: How much of a pullback do you need to see to become enthusiastic again?
6: Well, first of all, there. Are, uh, let's say that I've always told people in a bull market there are three positions one can have: really long, modestly long, or neutral. And at this point on gold, I'm neutral. How far down do I think I need to see it go? Well, we we're trading close to 1900, 1955. I think just a few seconds ago. Uh, if we traded back to 1775 to 18 mm-hmm. and a quarter, mm-hmm. I'd be a buyer, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And do I think that we'll get that kind of correction? Yes, I think we will. Do I? Can I tell where if it gets to 1775? Is that reasonable? I'll just simply say $100 from, from any interim high, and I'm a buyer again.
2: What's the catalyst for a sell-off?
6: Just the fact that the, the market is way too crowded, too many people involved, nothing more than that. Sometimes that's all one needs. You might see uh, a, a Fed become less accommodative, discussing perhaps a, a, a less expansionary policy towards its balance sheet. Some sort of comment from a federal official might do it. Uh, a, a turnaround in the dollar to a, a stronger dollar, which I don't think is going to happen that might do it. Uh, weakness in the stock market, that might do it. There's a number of things, but let's just simply say too many people are all, all, all of a sudden all involved in the in the gold market. There's only one position that everybody has that's long, and I think that's just people have to be taken out of that trade.
2: Dennis, Nothing weakness in the stock market causing a sell-off in gold, does this mean that the correlation between gold and a risk-off feel in markets is broken?
6: Well, it's interesting. Sometimes gold and stocks go up together. Sometimes gold and stocks go in contravention one to another. For the past several months, they've been moving in, in convention one with the other. As gold has gone up, so has stocks. As stocks has gone up, have gone up, so has gold. But I do think that there's a great probability that that conventional movement, that that consistency between yeah. the two shall, shall continue for a while longer. So if if the stock market, and I think stocks are extremely expensive, if stocks start to tumble, you'll get a a, a correlative sell-off in the gold market.
0: What people don't understand, folks, is the Dennis Gartman newsletter was 10, 12, 14 pages long each day, and the back three or four pages were on the political philosophy of this nation. Dennis, I know there's going to be four hipsters in front of Congress today. Rumor has it you were going to be the fifth horseman, and you're not there. But what is Congress doing going after the value-add capitalism that we've seen out of silicon technology?
6: It's ill-advised, it's a bad decision, but they're going to do it anyway because that's the left-wing phenomenon, that's the left-wing philosophy that seems to dominate the news media at this point. So it's going to be, I think it'll, it'll be terribly ugly. Ugly, uh, almost as ugly as what we watched yesterday with the attacks upon Mr. Barr. So this, I don't think, is going to be a very pretty day for the, to be a... How should they handle of... it?
0: How should, I mean, you and I remember the Bloomberg headline where the Justice Department walked away from the Microsoft litigation of years ago, AT&T, et cetera. What's your advice to these guys, over-lobbied, over-expert, about how to patiently get through this?
6: That's exactly what they should do. Patiently get through it. Try not to smirk. Try not to laugh. Try not to get up and walk out. Answer the questions with yes and no answers and be as genteel and as Southern as you possibly can be, it'll be very difficult.
0: Genteel and Southern. Well, you own that, Dennis. Dennis, I want to go back to the equity markets where Lisa was uh, before. You say they're overpriced, but they have a bid. I have to participate (laughs) in a 401k. I'm not trading like Doug Cass or you or, you know, the day traders. I know you're on the couch. Mrs. Garbin's on the couch doing the Robin Hood thing. If I'm in a 401k, I have to participate. How do I do that?
6: Well, I think you should still be. It, it is still a bull market, and it's still
0: a long-term bet on the
6: benefits and, and the the attributes of the American system. Over long periods of time, it'll still be th- five years from now. Stocks will be from the lower left to the upper right from where they are now. Shall they be from the lower left to the upper right in the next six months? I have my doubts. And if you're long, uh, if you're overly exposed, I think being somewhat less exposed after a 37 or 38 percent rally in the Nasdaq in the mm-hmm. course of the last three months probably makes sense to take some of that off the table. Raise a little cash. Right. Can't hurt you at all.
0: Dennis, Lisa emails in from surveillance <laughs> and says, when you get a chance, Dennis, tell us when to go long gold again. Mr. Gartman, just brilliant on the moonshot that we've seen on gold in yen and in euro as well. Francine LaCroix in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. He is the Richmond Fed. There was a gentleman named Mr. Black, and then there was Al Broadus, and then on to Jeffrey Lacker. But the character and true fabric of the Richmond Fed is always and will be Al Broadus. We're thrilled he could join us today. Al, you've never seen a deficit like this. How does the deficit growth, the deficit sustainability, the deficit reality that we have, how does it change the dialogue at the Eccles?
7: building well you know I think uh, none of us are comfortable with these deficits that's that's for sure but I, I think it's well recognized that uh, this is just a really unusual situation and I don't need to maybe we've people talk about this uh, endlessly uh, on your program and elsewhere uh, and you got you got to deal with it with policy in a really wholesale way and they've done that and I think I think so far the progress uh has been has been good uh so i i think the, the general thinking around that table probably is we don't we're not comfortable with these deficits uh but we're going to have to live with them for a while and hopefully uh you know we'll, we'll deal with uh, bringing them down when the economic situation and <clears throat> the driver which is the right. pandemic uh, gets uh gets to a point where we we have the opportunity to do that. But for the, the, now, I think it's just steady as she goes.
0: The academics of the Richmond Fed has been so varied and interesting, but if you color and combine together Richmond, Atlanta, maybe Bob McTear in the Georgia School at the Dallas Fed as well, there's a huge body, the American public that's grievously concerned about deficit buildup. Can you support trillions of dollars of additional stimulus? To overlay over what Chairman Powell is doing.
7: I think we have. I think at this point, Tom, we really don't have a lot of choice, Uh, and I think many of the most recent statements by uh, Reserve Bank Presidents now on the committee uh, have been calling for uh, continued fiscal uh, stimulus, Uh, I think uh, uh, there's going to be some concern at the Fed about the difficulty of getting uh, this current uh, uh, division between the House and the Senate uh, corrected and, 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 and done. Uh, but uh, that's going to add to the deficit, and I just have to go back to what I said a minute ago. Uh, we're not used to it. We don't like it. Uh, but we've got to live with it uh, until we get a good, solid floor under the economy. Hopefully the path of the pandemic will make it possible to do this with less future further buildup uh, as we move through the second half of the year and into 2021. Uh, but uh, you know, if, if things do go south, we have to be prepared for that, and I think what's happening now is we're trying to prevent that from getting any worse, and that's really job one. Uh, and bringing the debt. Look, I don't like deficits. I think you know that. I don't like the the potential inflation or longer term inflationary implications uh, of high deficits and the the fact that the Fed is essentially monetizing uh, a a lot of this. But, you know, you've got to prioritize. We've got to get the weakness in the economy uh, undergirded so that uh, we can look forward to the day when uh, we'll get. We'll, we'll, we'll see more growth in the economy, and that deficits will just naturally begin to go down.
5: Mr. Brotus, when will we see a, a much stronger U.S. economy? I mean, what kind of uh, economy good question. Will we see
7: uh, that, a lot is going to depend. Uh, uh, There's several possibilities. It's hard to hard to know for sure. Uh, it, and again, I think it comes back to the path of the pandemic and, and uh, how we deal with that. I think maybe it was uh, Robert Kaplan, the Dallas Fed President, uh, I'm not sure of this, but one of the uh, Reserve Bank presidents said that the really, uh, maybe it was uh, Eric uh, in, in, in Boston, made the point that the best economic tool now is the things we're trying to do to get the pandemic under control, to bend the curve down. Uh, so hopefully we'll have some success. We have had a tough time for the last couple of months with that, not much success. Uh, you begin to see, I think, in some of the most recent data, I'm no expert on this, but in some of the most recent data I was looking at listening uh, about yesterday, maybe a little bit of progress in the southern states towards uh, easing the caseload increase. If that were to turn into something like a trend, that would make a huge difference and, and make yeah. our job a lot easier and make the day when we begin to grow again come sooner rather than later.
5: You mentioned that you're worried about inflation, you're worried about these deficits. When do investors start worrying about that?
7: Well, you know, I think some investors are already worrying about it. I think some of the run-up in in the price of gold probably reflects uh, concern on the part of (coughs) of, of some investors. I don't want to suggest here that I think inflation is a clear at present current danger. I don't expect to see uh, actually, what we uh, would like to see is an increase. Uh, what the Fed would really like to see uh, is an increase in the underlying trend uh, rate of inflation. Uh, back up close to the 2% target. I think that would make conducting monetary policy uh, a, a lot easier. But, at, you know, if that uh, we begin to see a movement in that direction at some point, probably more than a year further down the road, then, then you could begin to see some upside risk on the inflation uh, up front. But that's for the future. I uh, have to look forward to it. I have to be aware of it. Uh, but that's uh, something that the Fed will have to deal with in the future. Right now, the, I think the key thing is to get the inflation rate uh, up uh, yeah. uh, and bring it closer to the 2% target. Now, the Fed, I'm, uh, I'm giving you a long answer here, but the Fed uh, uh, at this meeting is going to be discussing I think the kind of strategy it wants to follow uh, to ensure that something like that, uh, that happens. We have an inflation target of 2%, but I think there's going to be discussion about the possibility of going to go into something, call it average inflation targeting, which would allow the inflation rate for a period of time yeah. to move above 2% uh, in order to get us onto uh, uh, a better inflation track.
5: Al us, thank you so much for joining us today. He's the former Richmond Fed president. Thanks
0: for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.